Tonight, we are going to be in Esther, chapters 3 and 4. So last week, we began the book of Esther, and we mentioned it takes place in, in a timeline about 485 B.C. It, it, to place her in the timeline, she's after when Zerubbabel brought the captives back from Medo-Persia under uh, Cyrus to come back to Jerusalem, the 50,000 captives that came back. But then there's a gap before um, Ezra comes back, and she's kind of in that timeline right about the time Ezra brought that second group back, and she's about 20 years before Nehemiah came back and fortified the walls. So she's in that same general timeline of, you know, like how we got baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Z sharing it right now. It's kind of like, you know, they're all kind of connected in that little 80 to 100-year window. And, but she was there in modern Iran in that Medo-Persian empire, and we know that uh, King Artaxerxes was a great king. He reigned 22 years, 127 provinces, all the way to India. And no one had really had that kind of power in human history. They did conquer the Babylonians, after all. And that's pretty amazing. And Belshazzar's daughter, Vashti, was queen. And you know the whole thing, they were drinking for half a year a party. And then they had a particular super party for seven days. And they were just out of their minds. And when their hearts were merry... He came up with a bad idea to make his wife come parade herself before the men, and she wasn't having it. And so she was removed as queen, and that was that's how it went for Vashti. And so then it began a process of over four years to replace her with a new queen. She wasn't just a concubine or something like that or one of many wives. She was the queen. So it was a huge decision that he made in his pride and his drunkenness and the consequences. We saw that in application last week. But eventually, after four years, Esther, the Jew, although no one knows she's a Jew, an orphan Jew at that, she wins the beauty pageant to be the new queen. And of course, she would have had an inward beauty to go with her outward beauty, and she is the new queen. And as I mentioned, this is important because sometimes you think of Esther as the events all just happening like, oh, this happened in a couple months, when it's spread out over years. And that's important because, again, it said the drunken feast was the third year of Ahasuerus, and then it was the seventh year when Esther became queen, and then tonight we pick up the text in chapter 3, and it's going to be the twelfth year. So I just want to make that clear that these things are, you know, sometimes movies will make it seem like it all happened like that, but this is over a period of time. And as we mentioned, after he dispelled Vashti, Ahasuerus, he went and picked a battle with the Greeks, a huge battle that he lost. So he was... He, he banished his wife, and then he had a huge defeat, and that would have been humbling, but then he had the beauty pageant, and Esther becomes his wife, and that's where we pick it up tonight in chapter 3. So it says, after these things, and those are the things that it's after that we're talking about right there. So after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite. So an Agite, that's a, big, that's a big issue. We'll come back to that. And advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, that's Esther's relative, would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gates said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them. 
and that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai told him that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So a big turn of events here in these six verses. So Haman the Agite, this takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and the famous story of King Saul when he came to power, the first king of Israel. And God gave him a command to make war against the Agites and to completely wipe them out, just like the Canaanites. Not one Agite was to live. Now, in the context of Saul as king during the time of Samuel, it was a punishment for what the Agites did to Israel when they came out of Egypt, when they were delivered from Egypt in the book of Exodus. The Agites attacked the rear guard and, and on the mixed multitude and the weak and the, the tired. And they did that. And God held that people group, listen, that people group accountable for that. So now about 500 years later, at the time of Saul, God commands Saul, these people, they're profoundly against us. And it's been proven that Herod the Great being an uh, Edomian, that there, there's a lot of scholars that argue he's a descendant of the Agites as well for that same region in the, the Sinai Peninsula. There's something about the Agites that have a profound, long history of being a threat to the Jewish people. And remember, salvation is of the Jews. The scriptures are of the Jews. The promised Messiah, Jesus, who sang all those songs, is the king of the Jews. And so it's not just one ethnic person disliking or hating another ethnic group of people. This goes much deeper than this. This is spiritual. This is supernatural. The, the spiritual battle between the Agites against the Israelites and the Jews. And lo and behold, now here, 500 years after King Saul, a thousand years after the Agites attacked Israel on their way out of deliverance from Egypt, we have Haman the Agite, who's not, just, who's not content to have everyone but one man bow down to him in the whole kingdom. Isn't that how it is? Uh, just, we all understand this. There's something wrong with us in our sinful nature. Just, it's, we don't have time to go into it. It's a psychological thing related to being from Adam and Eve in sin. But you would think like you're the second most powerful person. You're a billionaire. You can do whatever you want. You got all these kids. You got all this stuff. And there's just this one person. This is the one thing that's going to just bother you that this person doesn't bow down to you and recognize that. And he's an agite. So this shows where we don't need to justify God's word ever. Don't ever feel you need to. But when he told Saul, the wife of the agites, well, here, look, here's a remnant of the Agites and Amalek and the Agites. Um, King Agag being from the Amaleks. Amalek, and so here, this, this, is, this is like not dealing with something and having it coming back to you. And we all know that. If you don't destroy things God says to destroy, they're going to come back at you. It eventually just works that way. This is a 500-year gap. That's a long time. Who could have known on the day of Saul's failure where he justified it that this event would happen five centuries later in the results of his disobedience? And even though Samuel did what he could, it, this, it plays out this way. 
And again, many scholars connect Herod the Great and what he did to the children in Bethlehem to this lineage in, in the relation to the Amalekites and the Agites in that relation to it. So all that to say, it's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle right here that we're reading about in this situation. And Haman's a very evil man, but the devil always wants to wipe out the Jews. God always preserves the Jews. All the pogroms, the, the persecutions against the Jews in Russia, medieval times in Europe, all these places, the Middle East. About 10 years ago, I read a book about the history of the Jews from the time of their dispersion in 70 AD to being birthed as a nation. And it went through all the regions of the world and the you know, 1,800 years of history before they came back in the, to their promised land that God promised them through Abraham. And it was just amazing to see how much suffering and persecution and attacks they went through across the board. And you would only have to, you could only conclude that it's spiritual. And again, God set aside Israel as the apple of his eye in the Old Testament because he gave them the scriptures and he promised the Messiah to save humanity through them. And of course, we know in the fullness of scriptures that Jesus comes back to Israel to establish his kingdom. So the Jews are connected to our scriptures, more importantly to the Messiah, the Lord God himself, the Son of God, Jesus the Savior, and to his triumphant return, and the whole world, like of all the places we can know where the world's going to, this timeline as we know humanity is going to end, you think, well, maybe it could end here, maybe it could end in Central Europe, maybe it'll end on the Eastern Front, you know, when the Germans are invading Russia in World War II, like, Maybe it's going to end here or there. Maybe it's going to end in China or like a big global war with China, the new superpower. Like, no, it ends in Megiddo, in the Galilean region. This timeline, as we know it, the human experience is going to end in Israel when Jesus, the king of the Jews, as the king of kings, comes back to establish the kingdom. It's just the way it is. And there's even... In modern times, all the attacks and all the things the UN does against the nation of Israel and the attacks on the Jewish people, it's just relentless. It, it, like, for example, Stalin and Hitler hated each other. Of course, they, they slaughtered millions of each other's men. But the one thing they agreed upon is they both hated the Jews. And it's just a spirit, it's spiritual. But beyond this context with Haman the Agite, who is an Amalekite, is this. It's Mordecai not bowing down to him. That's really the key thought there. It's just, it's just kind of a random verse. You know, it's like, but Mordecai would not bow down and pay homage. Now, this is kind of interesting because, for example, with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, a couple generations before this, in Babylon, when they refused to bow down, they refused to bow down to the big golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar made to himself as a result of Daniel interpreting his dream of greatness. So the music plays, everyone worships the statue. So that was a very clear, definitive example of idolatry. Remember the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, you'll have no gods before me. The second commandment, you'll worship no graven images. The third one, you'll hallow his name. And the fourth one is you'll keep the Sabbath holy. So those, for any Jew, like Mordecai, those are, those are the big four. Then honor your father and mother, and you know, shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, and covet. So, in Mordecai's convictions, because I feel like, I don't want to say it's a gray area, because, you know, like, 
Let's say, for example, when Trump was president, when he came and did a rally, he expected everyone to just bow down because like, he's the king. Well, he's like, well, I kind of agree with him. I guess I can bow down. Like, oh, hey, yeah, there you go. And he's doing his little you know, thing, whatever. And you're like, okay, yeah, he's, it's cool. And then Joe Biden becomes the president, and he's the new king, and he does the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's no big deal. Just bow down. He's like, you know, we got a lot of freedoms. Democracy is good. Hey, you know, like, whatever. Yeah, you know, bounce the budget, you know, whatever. This goes on in a lot of countries. This is human history. So, in a way, especially in Eastern culture, bowing down is just a form of respect. It's a way of showing respect, right? Like, I mean, certainly most Asian cultures, you know, just it's just basic respect. And if you want to make something right that you made wrong, quite often the people like, you know, get on your knees and ask apologies, whether it's Chinese, Korean, or Japanese. It just goes with the culture. It's, very, it's not Western culture. It's definitely not us. But if you understand those cultures, it is, it is a lot like that in those cultures to make something right. I don't really know why Mordecai felt so strongly that he wasn't going to bow down to Haman. Because if we'd already bow down to Haman, I'd be like, well, he's just, you know, it's just the culture. It's just the way it is. It's like, it's, he, like, I can't say it's idolatry. It, it, when I look at person, I'm like, if he hadn't bowed down, personally, I'd say like, well, I can see why he wouldn't. If he did, it's like, you know what, you just, whatever. It, 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 it's just, it's the culture. It, just because you, you show that respect to someone over you doesn't mean you're worshiping them. That's what I'm saying. But for Mordecai, it, 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 in his heart, with his Jewish heart, I'm sure in the first two commandments, he just felt like this is a, this is a form of worship because this man thinks he is God, which brings us to the early church because that was the whole problem with Caesar, is hail Caesar, and the Christians refused to say that Caesar supplanted the place of Jesus in supremacy. And this is where they got into a lot of trouble. So probably that really is how Mordecai saw it in his mind. Because listen, there was tens of thousands of Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire. And they were successful business people. We have tens of thousands of tablets that tell us that historically. And the Persian kings uh, really benefited from them. And there's archaeological tablets that prove this. There's something about Mordecai. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And it just goes back to personal convictions. I mean, we're going to see a lot of this. We've already seen this with Vashti, her personal convictions. Now we see it with Mordecai. Like, no, nah, I'm just not. That's not. And it says they tried to persuade him. He's like, nah. it says he, he said, I don't want to hear it. You know, like when you ever try to, trying to get through to your adult kids or something like a co-worker. Or, like, and, I, or, and they're just like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I just, I'm not having it. He just, there's, no, there's nothing more to talk about. That's what he literally says. Like, they, he's done. He's like, they said, why do you do this? And he would not listen to them. There's, there's no, nothing more to talk about. He felt very strongly about this, and he certainly would have known the risk to him personally in the stand he took. It just really shows who he was and how he saw his world. Like, when you really know and are secure in who you are with your faith in the Lord and where you stand in the universe and the person you see in the mirror, it gives you strength and courage when men bully you or women bully you and, and, and just do this kind of stuff. This is, this is the plight of the human experience. And it's just, you say, okay, well, all right, Mordecai, uh, good for you. Good for you. Now, a New Testament equivalent will really come back to Jesus saying, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father, but if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. That would be very clear. That would be very clear for in that situation, 
I think of Rachel Scott, who was killed in the Columbine shootings back in, I think it was 99, but the famous Rachel Scott book and all that. Like, I don't, there's, there's so many names I forget, but why do I remember Rachel Scott, the senior at Columbine High School? Because eyewitnesses testified that before she was executed in that school shooting, is they asked her point blank, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am. And she was executed. And her father wrote the book, and it was confirmed by a number of students who survived that moment that that went down, and she stood. See, sometimes you don't bow, and you get away with it, and you become second in command, which is the way this book ends for Mordecai. But you know, more often than not, you, you, you make the good confession, and you lay down your life for that good confession. I have been getting Voice of the Martyrs newsletter for 20 years. And I can assure you, every month I'm reminded, there are people who are threatened with their lives to not confess Christ publicly. And you see the scars on their faces, you see the missing limbs on their body, and you see the pictures of their loved ones who made the good confession and laid down their lives for that good confession. It's always a spiritual battle. So I would just say an application, you'll know when you need to have the good confession. And I hope and pray if and when we're really on the spot for that good confession, we won't have to manufacture it. It'll just be who we are, like a 17-year-old at Columbine High School two decades ago. Now we read on verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of uh, Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. See, there's the 12th year, right? So this is where we get our timelines. The scripture interprets the scripture. They cast per, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Ader. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from other peoples, all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, is it, is it not fitting for the king to let them remain? If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. Then, then the king's scribes are called on the 13th day of the first month, uh, a decree was written according to all Haman's command, commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letter was sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. I just have to say this, before... You know, the alcohol was the trouble for the king in the last chapter, chapter 1, and here he's sitting down to drink again. Th this guy had a drinking problem. This guy had a problem with alcohol, for sure. He's put out a decree to wipe out an entire ethnic people group throughout his kingdom to make money from it, being 
influenced by an ungodly man to do so. And by the way, you know in Proverbs, if you read it every month, the whole book, which is a good idea, I tell you that all the time, that it says it's not for you, O king, to be long on wine. A king needs to be sharp. The crown is heavy. You need, to whom much is given, much is required. The king needs to be sharp and sober and alert and discerning. Uh, just King Haraz needs to be that powerful and to just lack the discretion and the character to go with the position is sobering for all of us, for sure. So here's this law to wipe out God's people. There's, we know this. There's lots of bad laws in human history, and there's all kinds of bad laws that might affect us in a democracy, a monarch system, or a socialist, a communist system. Men and women make sometimes good laws when they match up with the Lord's word, and sometimes bad laws. It's unfortunate, but what we esteem in human history is people who stood up against bad laws. We esteem those people who hid Jews like Corrie ten Boom or, you know, risked their lives for Jews, you know, because Hitler made it a law to, he blamed everything wrong in Europe, particularly for the German people, on the Jews. Now, the German people, as the Prussians, were in the mid-1800s by far the most successful, powerful people on planet Earth. They had the best weaponry. They crushed the French. They crushed the Dutch. They, they, they were rolling until World War I. And they were humiliated. And it was their own doing. You know, most of the great scientists in human history have a, a Prussian-German background. And they, they were rolling. And then they, you know, it all went wrong with World War II and then the, the punishment on them. And so they blamed it on the Jews. And they got the facial caricatures against the Jews. And they passed laws against the Jews. And before they put them on trains to death camps they, and took all their wealth. I mean, they're still trying to get the reparation of the wealth stolen by the Nazis three generations later, what they did. It's incredible. There's all kinds of multi-million dollar wealth in private collections that was stolen from everyday Jewish people that earned that and had that. But that's human history. But people in Europe had to decide, good people, God-fearing people had to decide where they stood on something like that. And there were a lot of cowards in the church who stood on the wrong side. But there's wonderful people like Corrie Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood on the right side. When I go to Florida, I go through ATL. You know, that's Atlanta. That's the LAX. It's ATL is Atlanta. I love it, the ATL. It's a super convenient airport, huge airport. Super easy to get around. I can go John Wayne SNA to the ATL to the MLB, Melbourne, right there by Bureau. But I like to walk through. I like a long layover. I always like two, three hours layover because things go wrong, and I don't like to be stressed when I'm connecting with planes, if you travelers know. I've always got something to read, something to pray, and something to do. So I'm good with that. But in the ATL, when you walk, if you walk between terminals A, B, C, and D, there's things, and there's an exhibit for the history of Atlanta and really civil rights. And I see it every time I'm there, and I love to walk through it, and every time I just take my time, it's been there. It's about a football field at least long with both sides, from the Indians that were there you know, in the 1300s to the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement and all this stuff. And it's fascinating. And because I always have time, I love to read about these people and look at these photos. And I just think, like, I'm just so grateful for those people that are courageous to stand up against evil and bad laws. Now, I was thinking about this with Martin Luther King Jr. 
we have a holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. every year now. It started in the 80s. I remember when it began. He was one of my favorite heroes growing up, actually. And, and it's like, I think about J. Edgar Hoover from the FBI and all that he did against the black people in America and what he did against Martin Luther King Jr. And I thought about this. I've been almost every major city in America, and you will find a street in every city called Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. But you can't find a J. Edgar Hoover Boulevard anywhere. Have you ever seen J. Edgar Hoover Boulevard? I haven't. Not even in D.C. And I've walked the streets of D.C. Why? Because people who suppress freedoms, we don't remember them or care about them or esteem them three generations later. But people who laid on their lives for freedoms and for other people, especially civil nonviolence, we esteem that. Whether we're Latino, Asian, or white middle class, we should esteem that and value that. There's bad laws, always. And there's a lot to be said for people who will resist bad laws on behalf of those who are being suppressed by bad laws to try and bring about better laws. And that's just really important to understand. Because you can have sound theology, but you can just be a clanging symbol, 1 Corinthians 13. There are bad laws. This is a really bad law. And there have been bad laws. There will be more bad laws. And it's, if the church of Jesus Christ doesn't stand up for what's true, right, just, and noble, then who's gonna? It's really important. It's challenging. It's not easy, but there are bad laws. Now, some bad laws, they just exist like we have in our country. We have bad laws. There's some bad laws. Certainly, we all would agree there's, there's just some laws that are bad laws. But it, there comes a point where you have to really stand up against the bad laws, like the, like the church did in Europe in the 30s, or like decent people did here in our history. Like, it's, impo- it's just important. Again, it was Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, where he says this, that a coward dies a thousand deaths, but a valiant man only dies once. There's a lot to be said for that. There's bad laws. There may be more. Hopefully we can have better laws in the future for our children and our children's children. But if not, you know, I like to walk Atlanta Airport between Terminal B and C and be reminded that, that for, for good to come, good people need to do good things and stand up against bad things. I like to be reminded of that every time I go through the ATL. Now we read on in chapter 4. It's just good, and it's just good to know that you... Yeah, we just got to stand up for what's true, just, noble, and not, and not be cowards. You got to know what we stand for. And there are bad laws. We need to recognize them, and we need to be willing to stand against them. Chapter 4, when Mordecai uh, learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, and he went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command decree arrived, there was great mourning among the people, the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, there's a law that's going to wipe them out. It's, it's... So Esther's maid and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. And then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him. But he would not accept them. And then Esther called Hatcheth, one of the king's eunuchs, whom had been appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So 
Hatik uh, went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. It's always about money, isn't it? Uh, money and power. And he also gave them a copy of the written decrees for their destruction, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain to her that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hatcheth returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hatcheth and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called has but one law, to put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Now, yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that, of course, is the famous phrase from the book of Esther, for such a time as this. Most of us identify this verse, uh, verse 14, with that phrase, for such a time as this. We think back to Acts chapter 17, where Paul preached and said that God's determined when we'd live, where we'd live, the circumstances of our lives, such a time as this. God has predetermined when we'd be born. I, I always, it's just so fascinating to think like, how we have no choice in our conception, when we come into the world, our timelines. You get to your 60s and we say, so many people you know and love have stepped into eternity. I have a memorial for my friend who stepped into eternity at 67. It's coming up this Saturday at Oceanside Harbor. And it's just like, he's right there. There's a heart attack at 67, which is unusual for men because they usually have heart attacks in their 50s. But maybe it's just failed heart, like heart disease, the number one killer in America, uh, heart disease. But I was like, wow, oh, like, it's just hard to accept. Like, this is my guy. Like, we used to go skate empty pools in North County in the 70s. We'd find empty pools and skate them. We surfed here. We surfed there. He's such a big supporter of, of my career, such a good friend of the family. And you get a text. Haven't seen him in 20 years since Hawaii in the late 90s. And you get a text from his friend. He's like, wow. We're all going to go. We're all going to step into eternity. And again, we, this is my favorite theme, but to understand the value of here and now, carp diem, seize the day in Latin. To really seize the day. And we, we need to understand, especially disciples of Christ, if you are one, that we are for such a time as this. What our interests are. What our, who our people are, what our placement is, what our passions are, and, and to seize each day and recognize the opportunities that God has presented to us in those circumstances and situations. In my life story, having to think it over and over in the last year with the book, and now the book's getting closer to being finished, It's just crazy when I really think, like, how, how did I come from Cleveland, Ohio, and Virginia, and, and, and want to surf and watch this thing on TV and say, I'm going to do that. And, like, just our steps are orchestrated by the Lord. 
And it's like Jeremiah 1.5, before you're born, this is what I had for you. And as he guides our lives, even when we don't know he's guiding it, and we just think we're doing our own thing, and then eventually, when we come to Christ, we'll see his handprints, his fingerprints over our entire life. And then we're now his workmanship, and he, he's given us these passions, these, these things to do, and position from which to do them. And that therein is really the key for such a time as this. The position we've been given or the skill set we have and how it can be a blessing and a benefit. I'll use Scott Fahey for an example. You know, former policeman and he's our security guy and, and Roger and George that work with him. And we have the best security we've ever had in the history of this church with Scott Fahey running our security. It's very thorough. And it needs to be thorough, right? Things have changed since 2015. 05, when we started this church. Things have changed a lot. But I think here's a guy that loves the Lord and has his skill set, has been trained a certain way, and he's protecting us and keeping us safe. And training us, right? I did, you know, I did all this, right? Some of you, we did it together, right? Like, first responder stuff, and I learned things, and we just, this year we got better in our security and our safety in this church, for such a time as this. That's what we mean. Like It can be profound like Esther, but it can just be so simple. People identify me as surfing. If I do anything with surfing on any social media, it just goes, goes through the roof. I'm like, you know, that's, that's, that's so 1980. But that's what people, you know, like, I mean, think of Joe Montana, right? The great quarterback for the 49ers. What's he been doing in life? But, you know, like, we see Joe Montana, it's like, oh, the 49ers, 1970. It's like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. I always found this fascinating. You know, Led Zeppelin, there they were, the, just the kings of rock in the mid-70s and all that. He did music ever since. He still does music. He does different music. He probably wants to play the music he's doing now in 2023 for you. But, you know, most people are like, hey, do, do, do this one, you know, like. We have an association, we have gifts, we have skills, we have placement, we have passions, and God has a plan for such a time as this where he has put us. And we have different seasons with how he uses us where he's put us. And it can be so practical where you have just divine appointments. You end up somewhere and you see that this is the Lord. Look at the book of Acts. Paul is preaching there in Acts 14, and he sees a man lame from birth, and he sees he has enough faith. Well, for such a time as this, Paul's the one, sees the faith, has the faith to heal him. He's got the healing handkerchief. I don't know if he used it then. But that man, in the name of Jesus, arrives, and, and he, he sees the carp diem. He sees the moment. How about Philip with the Ethiopian? Philip's out there in the middle of nowhere going, oh, here I am. And here comes the Ethiopian, like reading Isaiah 53. <laughs> Philip's like, starts running alongside him. Hey, do you know what you understand right there? Do you know what you're reading? He's like, how can I? No one explains it. Carp diem. Sees the day. For such a time as this, there's going to be a last day for all of us. And I really hope on my last day, I'll have been seizing the day. And I hope the same for you. I hope that you'll be open every day, carp diem, to seize the day. And for such a time as this, know that this is where you're at in this situation, this season of life, these circumstances, and these opportunities that the Lord presents to us. Because he does present to us opportunities uniquely designed for each one of us. And as we're walking with the Lord and seeking the Lord, it is such a time as this. No life is meaningless. And certainly as a disciple of Jesus Christ, every life has incredible value and purpose. 
But it's really our responsibility, each one of us, to seize the day and understand why this placement, why this passion, and hear this purpose. And take responsibility for it and seize the day, each day as it comes together. All of Esther's life has been building, her heartache, all of her disappointments, all the things she's been through, it's all been building, building, building. The queen for years and yet hasn't seen her husband for 30 days and even go in, risk her life. Like, who even understands that kind of a culture? I don't. I don't think you do either. But all building, building to this moment. And Mordecai, who raised her, her relative, says, listen, you see his faith. Deliverance will come. See, that's faith. Deliverance will come. The question is, will you be a part of it? And isn't that true for all of us in Jesus' name? God's going to do a work. The question is, will we be a part of it? That's the real question. You know, it's been said that almost everything in planet Earth reaches for the fullness of what it's meant to be. Trees, you know, trees grow to be the fullness of what they're meant to be. Animals, in their natural instincts, become the fullness of what they're meant to be. It's only human beings that done themselves down. Which is ironic because we're creating God's image for God's glory and God's purposes. And we all come up short. The question is, how short do we come up? You know, when you're a coach and you look at athletes, like, hey, you want to see them fulfill their potential. The strong Christian Brock Purdy, the quarterback for the 49ers, Mr. Irrelevant, last person taken in the draft. I saw a statistic, 12 different statistics for a quarterback in the pro NFL football league. He leads every one of them. Every one of them. Every one of them. Not Patrick Mahomes or Justin Herbert or Josh Allen. Brock Purdy is number one in every category for a quarterback in the NFL right now. That's like, for the last person taken in the draft, that's really, that's full efficiency of your career. He makes everyone who drafted him look really smart. I thought, oh, that's how I want to be. Like, if you look at my, my stat sheet for Pastor Joey, like, you know, it's like, you know, like the Calvary Chapel rating, you know, trending. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of silly, but you understand what I'm saying? Fill up your cup. Fill up to the measure. Get the fullness of who you are meant to be. Carp diem, seize the day for such a time as this. To speak up, to comfort, to reach out, to make a difference. Whatever it is, God puts things on our heart that he doesn't put on someone else's heart. Because it's our calling and his plan to work through that in our life. Seize the day, body of Christ, worship generation. And it might require a lot, but we're saved by faith, we're justified by faith, and we walk by faith. And when you're going to seize the day, you can be sure you're going to need faith, and it will be faith. Now, we're almost done, but this continues on because look what happens in the next verse. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day, my maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. She said, I'm all in. Let's fast and pray. The stakes are high. The higher the stakes, the more important it is to have clarity of purpose and focus and commitment. But what, what a quote. If I perish, I perish. And that's a strong 
Well, you know, Satan said in the book of Job, yea, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give to save his life. So when we can say, if I perish, I perish, that's saying something. You know, I'll never forget my dad. My dad, of course, served in Korea and Vietnam. And when I, years ago, 1987, when I was living with him for one year, and I came upon these hundreds of slides from Vietnam War that he had. He took, he had a camera, and he took photos. They're, they showed the month, July, August, September, 66, 67. I can see his whole tour of duty in Vietnam. And he took the photos where he worked. This guy's going out on patrol. He took photos of things you would never want to see. And I said to my dad, I remember asking him, like, Dad, how did you, like, how did you deal with, like, because a lot of his friends died. And I said, how did you, like, handle that? Like, how did you handle living in constant fear of being in war and these things and being in a helicopter and, you, you know, he got, he got shot in the back in a helicopter, a Purple Heart. You know, like, how did you live like that? He goes, well, son, you know, once you accept your mortality, you're free from the fear of it. Bronze Star, Purple Heart. Once you accept your mortality, you're free from the fear of it. Lieutenant Colonel Philip F. Moran. USMC. That's a pretty profound statement because a lot of people never accept, accept their mortality and thus they never live. But if we can accept our mortality in Jesus, we're free to live for Jesus. See, Pastor Chuck used to say, I don't want, to, I don't want you to tell me you can die for Jesus. I want you to tell me you can live for Jesus. So, if we come to the place where our life really is not our own, it truly belongs to the Lord, we're free. If I perish, I perish. It's, it's a very liberating position. And obviously in war, it's very liberating. Once you accept that, oh, I certainly could die. I may not go home. Then you just do your job like a good Marine. My dad always said, I'm just doing my job. Marines do their job. I'm a Marine. I do my job. That's how he looked at it. I just love her faith. And so I, I close with this thought on Esther. If I perish, I perish. Like just, to, just to come to the place where you can say that. And, you know, I've ministered to many people with terminal illnesses or perceived terminal illnesses. And when you see that kind of faith, they're good to go. I've seen them go and I've seen them stay. I've seen people miraculously heal and I've seen people step into eternity. See, and this really comes down to, it's not if we're going to die. We're all going to die. We still mostly think about it. But we're, we're, we're going to die. We're going to transition from this dimension to the next one. It's not if, it's just when. So, and we know the why. For an Adam, all sin and die. So we're all under a death sentence through Father Adam. We, we understand that. But we also know through Christ in us the hope of glory, though the outward man's perishing, the inward man's being renewed daily, the inward woman. So we're being transformed from glory to glory. And that's why we don't need to fear that because we're getting the upgrade. The mortal must put on immortality. The, 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 the corruptible must put on incorruptibility. The terrestrial must put on the celestial. That's good news. It's a glorious thing. So if you perish, you perish, Esther. The question is, when are we going to perish? The question is, where are we going to perish? And the question is, how are we going to perish? When are we going to die? Where are we going to die? And how are we going to die? The days of man are 70 years by measure of strength 80, so that gives us a reference point, right? All my goals reverse engineer from 2041. Not that I don't have a vision for after 80, but I figure let's get to 80 first. 
Once I'm at 70, I'll start charting up the plan for 90. Right now, it's just 80. This, this is what I've really been thinking about. So it's not, it, it's not it but when. And when it all comes together, here's what I was thinking about with, with this, this word picture, this scene of Esther. It's, it's when it happens and where it happens and how it happens, who we will be on that moment when it does happen. Who will we be on that last breath? And will that last breath be yet another step forward in the character and the glory of Jesus Christ in the life we're living? That's That final sentence, that's the book of our life, the final sentence is the last breath. And Esther says, if I perish, I perish. So when we perish, will that moment be the final sentence on a beautiful story of a life of growth in Christ Jesus right to the end? I hope it will be. I certainly intend to pursue that for my life. I'm certainly hoping to encourage you to do the same for years. If I perish, I perish. But until then, we live for Christ. Yes and amen.